Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? Or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. As our country continues to feel divisive and unstable, it can be helpful to focus on our shared struggles. Today, our listener Aubrey shares her story and offers a nuanced perspective on sex addiction. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. everyone and welcome to another episode in the pearls today we're going to talk about the president's pardon of joe arpaio the north korean missile test the transgender military ban and the concept of a Kasich hickenlooper i can i struggle with his name Kasich hickenlooper unity ticket in the suit we're going to share my conversation with our listener aubrey about her family's struggle with sex addiction and in the heels we'll talk about what's on our mind outside of politics and mine involves being naked so you definitely want to stay for that segment 
That is quite the tease, Sarah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Naked tease. There's only other kind of one kind of tease, right? Um, before we get started, we did want to say you can head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash pantsuit politics and find out how to become a supporter of our show. We've been putting up a lot of additional content content. We have usually too many interviews to fit into the show. So we're going to start putting extra interviews and bonus content on Patreon along with our extra bonus episode for supporters of $15 or more a month. So go check that out. I think that the Trump administration is trying to take the Friday night news dump concept to a new level. An insensitive level, considering the biggest news was people being hit by a hurricane. Yes. And so I think we should just go through some of the things that happened. In a way, this could either be the longest or the shortest episode of The Pearls ever. (laughs) Because I have so many thoughts about the president's pardon of Sheriff Arpaio. But my main one is just, well, that was an abuse of power. Hmm. Well, there's two things. One, I am not from the West, so I am not a member of an immigrant population. So um, I am privileged to, up until this point in my life, not pay too much attention to Sheriff Arpaio. I only sort of knew the high points of the like make, making them wear pink uh, uniforms, making prisoners in his jails wear pink uniforms, and that sort of high level silliness and. So that was sort of my perspective when I was sort of an eye roll. And then I began reading more and more and more about Sheriff Arpaio. And I have passed from eye roll into head spinning fury. This man is a monster. The suicide rate at his jails were like two or three times what they should be. People died. He didn't investigate rapes down to, you know, like high level human, human, ethical, moral offensiveness, all the way down to like, he cost the people of his state or his county, like $140 million in lawsuits, among which when he faked an assassination attempt. What the hell? Also, a Republican prosecutor recommended the contempt of court charge that he's facing now. I mean, it's not like he has been victimized by it. This is not a political issue, right? His case. Even though the president is desperate to make it one. Yes. Well, and he has made it one now. And he had a roaring crowd in front of him during his campaign rally in Arizona where he suggested that he was going to do this. I thought he meant months from now. No, apparently he meant it like after the commercial break. I'm going to be pardoning the sheriff. And it's just outside of the process of pardoning. It doesn't fit any historical sort of foundation and examples of how people pardon. It's just an abuse of power. And I don't know how you feel about this. It felt like to me that it was just, you know, there's all these Russia investigation stories coming that there was 10 hours of testimony about the dossier and that, um, Paul Manafort, you know, the investigation is closing in on him. And it felt like a symbol. It felt like, don't worry, guys, I'll pardon you. So stay strong. It just is disgusting. I think the past week has been a very strong indication that the president believes he is a king or an emperor because he pardoned this person who is a symbol of racial division in the country. And who also acted like a king or an emperor. Correct. Above the law, how he got in trouble in the first place. He did this on the heels of being criticized for not taking a strong enough stand against racism in connection with Charlottesville. He also did it, as you said, around the time that subpoenas are being issued and the Mueller investigation seems to be uh, continuing. And I don't know. I don't want to make any suggestion about where it is or where it's going because it could still drag on forever. But 
as there are as there is news about that investigation, he does this, and it does feel like an assurance to people who are receiving subpoenas that they should just keep their heads down and stay loyal, and he'll take care of them in the end. Ugh. It's. It's a gross action. It's and so I gross. really hope that some of the Republicans in Congress care enough about actual law and order and the rule of law to start thinking about what they're going to do about this. Oh, my God. It's just so offensive. And my other um, favorite stories to link together besides Arpaio and the Russian stories was the idea that as North Korea is launching more missiles, we are kicking well-trained individuals and soldiers out of the military for being transgender. That's a, that's a good, that's a good uh, set of stories to look at together as well. Are we kicking them out or are we just saying no? I, I don't know what the effect is for current service members who are transgender, but I know that we aren't going to allow new transgender individuals to enlist. Well, what I I read, well, I read that they could stay, but that they're not going to pay for their treatment anymore. And why, you know, there's a part of me that's like, why, what do you expect people to do if you're saying, we don't want people like you in the military, but we'll let you stay, but we're not going to provide you any health care. And you you have to go back to this tortured existence. And when you, in which you are pretending to be something you are not, um, gross. Estimated cost of transgender health care for the military, by the way, just, slightly under what two Mar-a-Lago trips mm-hmm. require. Mm-hmm. I think it is horrific that the president has done this. We've talked about this before on the show. I do not understand denying someone who is able to serve in our military that that service. And I don't understand why we would say anything but thank you to people who are willing to do this for our country. And I especially don't understand doing this when he's walking around touting our military might in the world. And at home, we are struggling through the culture wars again. It's awful. It's just so Friday was so brutal, like all of this stuff at once. And it just felt like it just felt like we were getting kicked in the face over and over again. And I don't even know. It's like every fresh wave of outrage leaves me feeling even more powerless, which is a really, really, really terrible feeling because, you know, I know that we're not powerless, that we live in a democracy, but, you know, our power comes from our processes and our rule of law. And if you have somebody so willing to flout them and nobody else willing to stick up for them, it's just, it's discouraging. And that's the the nicest word I can find for it. I also wish that the people around the president would remind him of the consequences of his words. I think they approach these. Uh, this is my speculation that the handful of serious people around the president look at things like the Phoenix rally as gas in the president's tank. He unfortunately needs these events to keep him going. And, and I think they just sort of dismiss that as all nonsense. But he took a victory lap during that speech in Phoenix about North Korea. And the next day we hear that North Korea is putting even more energy into missile tests. And then we have another missile test. Hmm. You cannot, as the president of the United States, think that any speech you give is not going to be heard around the world or any tweet you write. Yes. He I mean, he is bragging that Kim Jong-un is starting to respect the United States. And then Kim Jong-un says, oh, really? Well, let's fire another missile. It's like he is simultaneously sort of in this, you know, well, I know what the difference is. He's in an ego place about Donald Trump, and he does not understand the seriousness of being president of the United States. Because I think at the end of the day, he is Donald Trump. He's not president of the United States. I don't think that's how he, 
I don't think that's a role he inhibits. It's a title he gave himself, but he is still himself. That's the most important player in this is not the role, the purpose, the, the, you know, the importance of being president of the United States. It's being him and who, in how awesome he is. And let's talk about how great I am. I also really liked uh, John Favreau from Pod Save America tweeted, I don't want to hear another story about somebody bringing order to the White House again. Not another one. <laughs> Agreed. I, I also don't want to hear any more rejoicing over who's departed from the White House. Yeah, because that's what else happened on Friday. I mean, I guess he departed. I don't really know what happened because Gorka, Seb- Sebastian Gorka, is that his first name? Yes, although I'm promising not to ever speak of him again. <laughs> it was just so weird. It was like he sent this letter saying he quit because he it was that all the MAGA team was gone. And then they said he didn't quit, but he doesn't work here anymore. Huh? I'm confused. He went over to the Breitbart wing of the Trump White House. That's what happened. Ugh, so gross. So let's talk about speaking of wings of the White House and conservative movements. Let's talk about the unity ticket. It's been apparent that John Kasich is not finished for a Mm. while. And I'm glad because I think John Kasich is a better representative of the conservative movement than pretty much anybody else on the on the stage right now. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't line up with him on everything, but I certainly appreciate his tone and his seriousness. And so I'm I'm encouraged that he is still interested in being involved. I love the idea of a Democrat and a Republican running together for anything. Let's do that all the places. I think that we need more gubernatorial tickets like that. I think. But how is that going? How would that work, though? You just independent ticket. It challenges the whole framework. And I think that that's good. I think it I think that tests us in a big way on fundraising. You're going to have to have the Michael Bloomberg's of the world step up to help support something like that. And I think it's good. Um, what I think unity tickets, a presidential ticket or otherwise require are some to, to truly be unity tickets. I think some diversity needs to come into play, too. Mm-hmm. I would be mm-hmm. a lot more excited about a unity ticket that was not to white men. Mm-hmm. And I and no disrespect to either of these men or to any white man anywhere. Listen, I live in a house full of white be, men. I got no that's right. white men. I love one very much um, and, and lots of others. But I just am ready to I think if you're going to call it a unity ticket and really do the kind of healing work that the country needs right now, you you've got to have a new voice in that mix, too. So, so that's we, my perspective. What do you think, Sarah? I agree. I think you I think I agree. And I think there's just there's a big pragmatic part of myself that I'm just not sure how it's going to work. I think that we need an independent party. I think it needs to be called independent party. <laughs> so there's no confusion because I think they have enough people willing to come together enough. I mean, maybe what we need is an independent party in which you can be a Democrat and caucus with the independent party occasionally instead of the other way around. Or you can be a Republican and caucus with the independent party um, instead of feeling like you have to be an independent that chooses sides. I mean, you know, we have enough independent governors and independent senators, I think that could get together and really form something. There's just a part of me that sort of wants that structure first. And then the candidates later. I don't know. I don't know which is the better, the, the sort of the better process to go about it is to have the big names or to have the, the sort of framework and then bring in the names 
later. So you're not so dependent on those people. I hope that this discussion prompts people thinking about this at different levels because I'm really tired of everything being about the presidency mm-hmm. and I don't want to start 2020 today and I don't want to spend the next three years talking about these guys and whether these are the right guys. But the concept of let's come together, that's great. Let's yeah, do that I love everywhere. the idea of a split ticket. No, Nothing not to love about that. Before we compliment the other side, uh, we've got to talk for a second about what our listeners are enduring in Texas as Hurricane Harvey has just been brutal this weekend. Did you see that video on Twitter where they were driving down the street before and after? It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Because there's, you know, there's you see the big the big clouds from the satellite. And you see the rain, but, you know, they're just to watch building after building and then, you know, definitely know that you're in the same place, but there's no buildings left. It's just it's really hard to wrap your brain around the destruction that something like that can bring. And in an area of the country that has not seen it in a long time. It's the kind of thing that makes you think even more about how important it is to get past some of the just ridiculousness that's going on with our government right now because Mm -hmm. natural disaster is where government has got to step up right i haven't read anything about sort of lacking fema response have you besides the fact there's no head of fema no i haven't um seen anything like that the couple of things that i have noticed on social media which i haven't spent a lot of time with in the past couple of days are one uh, a really great thread um encouraging people not to tweet with the hashtag of the hurricane unless they have actual information that would help people. Oh, that's a good Yeah. And I thought that was really it, it really kind of brought home the power of social media in situations of disaster. And so um, I thought that was a great reminder. And then the second thing is just watching President Trump somehow make this about himself, Ugh. about how um People are saying it's the biggest storm ever, basically, and, you know, he's on it and his people are on it and it's all great. And and look, I want him and his people to be on it. I, I wish that he would not behave this way about something that is so dangerous. You know what my father says, Beth, you can wish in one hand and <clears throat> in the other and see what it's fills true. up first. I have a feeling I know the answer to that experiment without conducting it. So, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Well, speaking of unity tickets, um, my compliment the other side fits into that, I think. Um, I had a call with our listener and friend, Haley Stevens, who is a Democrat running in Michigan's 11th district for Congress. And I want to extend my compliment to her. Haley is just – she has real expertise on the economy and job creation And I'm excited that she's running. I'm excited that someone her age is running. I think that she brings a lot of passion and heart. I I was really thrilled that she reached out to me knowing that I'm a Republican and asked me to be a supporter of her campaign, which I'm delighted to do. So, Haley Stevens, thank you for being out there and being in the arena. So Haley is like my actual friend in real life, and I adore her. We met when we worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign. And um, she's super, super smart and has been so supportive of everything that um, I've done and has stayed in touch with me. She lived in Kentucky for a little while um, and she is really is super smart, 
also has the most adorable Michigan accent in the world. And um, it's just really a wonderful friend and a wonderful person. And I think would represent the people of the 11th district in such an amazing way. And it's been so fun to watch her campaign and and support her. And um, I can't wait to see how it all turns out. So my compliment for the other side, I was with my friend of mine who picked me up from the airport who lives in Clarksville, and she is a Democrat, and she was complimenting um, the governor of Tennessee, Bill Haslam, and she said that, you know, she doesn't agree with him on everything, but that he does a lot of really great um, things and a lot of sort of bipartisan work. And one of the big things that he's done that she sees the impact of in her area is the free community and vocational school for everyone in Tennessee. And she was just, um, saying really great things about him. She used to live in Kentucky. And so she's a new citizen of the state of Tennessee and has been very impressed by his work. Tennessee has been so innovative on adult education. Mm-hmm. I think they really get it and are really doing the work around how do we get people employed in the new economy? I've been super impressed too. In the suit today, I'm going to share my conversation with Aubrey. I want to let you know that this will sound a little different. It might take your ear a second to adjust to because we have changed Aubrey's voice and you'll understand why as the interview goes along. I think it's a really good time to tap into some of our shared human struggles. And Aubrey brings a lot of thoughtfulness and vulnerability to this conversation about her family's struggle with sex addiction. And I hope that you enjoy it and join me in thanking Aubrey for this contribution. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. I am here with our listener, Aubrey, who reached out to us in a really gracious way after we had a brief discussion about Anthony Weiner and his wife, Puma Abedin. And Sarah and I always kind of come from the perspective on their story that while they are public figures, uh, their personal struggle is one that we should respect and give space to. That said, it is of interest to lots of people, and it's a story that lots of people live in different ways. And so we were delighted to hear from Aubrey, who was willing to share uh, perspective on on their struggle and what that struggle looks like in general. So, Aubrey, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really, really appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about this in a public way. Well, I um, admire you for doing so, and I have a feeling that your story is going to touch a lot of people. So I don't want to confine you in any way in how you talk about this. Do you want to just kind of dive in and tell me why you reached out to us and uh, what you want to share? Yeah, um, well, I specifically reached out to you guys after I you know, read just the latest article on Anthony Weiner, which let's go ahead and get it out of the way. That's the worst possible name for someone to be dealing with a sexual addiction situation. Yes, <laughs> but. It's one of those things where it's like, you just kind of got to get, get that out of the way in the beginning. But um, yeah, he his most recent thing that was in the news a while back was, oh goodness, you might have to help refresh my memory because this was a little while ago. Um, was it that he got actually charged with soliciting a minor or, or sending inappropriate pictures to a minor? Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, their separation has become public fodder yeah, now as well. Of course. Um. And immediately, I even just in the tone of all the articles that I was reading and when I would hear my friends or other other people in podcasts or news talk about it, there's always automatically this 
tone of mockery or judgment. It just really feels like it lacks empathy. I ha- I am in that situation where my husband is um my husband is a sex addict and I am fully aware of everything and you know he's he's trying to work on his recovery. Um, but just that whole world is and I should also probably back up and say, I do not know that Anthony Weiner is a sex addict. Um, I am just, that's my, you know, armchair diagnosis. I am not a professional by any means. My professional life is completely separated from anything involving mental health or addiction. Um, this is all coming from a place of just personal, um, personal experience. So you look at the coverage of Anthony Weiner and uh-huh. you're right. I mean, we treat it like it's a big joke. But anyone who's watched the documentary about the family can see that this is incredibly personal. It's incredibly painful and it's very real. You know, I I found myself both loathing him and developing Mm -hmm. kind of a sense of compassion for him um, Uh in in watching that documentary. Yeah, I actually I I was unaware of the documentary. I've kind of um, removed myself from the situation a little bit for my own mental health sake. Uh, And I, you know, I try not to dive too much into into it just because i get so angry with how it's how it's usually talked about um which is one of the reasons i specifically reached out to you all because i i'm a big follower of the podcast and i really appreciate how you're able to talk about really tough issues with giving people grace and giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're you know starting from the point of okay i'm going to make the assumption that this person is a good person and that they're not just immediately judged as having moral failings that it might possibly be there might possibly be other things involved in the situation yeah we Um, always talk about Brene Brown the sort of everyone's doing their best now yeah their best can have consequences and sometimes can be dangerous or unhealthy but they're doing their best so how long have you known your husband and how long has this been a part of your story I've known him for about 10 years um and this has been part of our story for, for about five years um, but it's been an it's been a ever changing, um, you know, ever changing story. Uh, I initially we initially started talking about the concept of him having sexual addiction before we were engaged or married or anything like that. And so I, I've known about this for a very long time. Well, a very long time being five years, which seems like a long time at this point. But he whenever we first started talking about it, you know, it. It was all I, I found out about it kind of, you know, by accident, the way that you would normally find out if, you know, if you were to find out your significant other was cheating on you or something like that. But when I brought it to his attention, he immediately started using words like addiction and compulsion and talked about how he does not like these aren't things that he wants to pursue. It's things that he has lack of control over when he first said that to you, did that land with you or did you think it was an excuse? I guess that's my question. Cause I feel like our understanding yeah. of this is so limited culturally. Right. Right. And also it, in explaining this to, to, you know, close friends that I've, that, that, that know my story and know what's going on. That's one of the things that I always hear is like, okay, it's addiction, you know, like it's just, they just want to think that that's an excuse for being cheated on. Um, but Honestly, just knowing knowing him as well as I do, and I know that this is one of those things that sounds different to different people because sometimes when you hear someone say, oh, but you just don't know him like I do, you immediately think of somebody being in an abusive relationship and making excuses. Um, but again, going back to the to the Brene Brown, you know, like he 
my husband is a good person like that. I, I would not devote my life to someone. I, I'm a very, I do say so myself. I am a very intelligent, very emotionally intelligent uh, person. And I know myself very well. And I, I know my, my partner, you know, and he's somebody that I've, I have had a connection with ever since we met. And we, we even, we've gone through a lot of other stuff before this. And I don't know, it's just really hard to explain, you know, and that's one of those things when anybody's in a relationship, you just, you understand it better than anybody on the outside because you're in it. And so whenever someone on the outside is trying to understand something that doesn't make sense to them, it's really hard to give them all the information because most of the information can't be put into words. So that's well said. So he tells oh, you that he has this compulsion and, and you trust him. Yeah, that actually, I, that I don't remember thinking of it as an excuse. I, what I remember is when he said that, that made more sense to me. Okay. Just based on his personality and our relationship like that, that made more sense to me than, than the concept of him cheating for just the reasons that I, you know, whatever reasons people normally would cheat. Um, and the more that he would explain it to me and also, and I'll, we'll get into this probably a little later, but the more that we've learned out since about his, his family history and his childhood growing up. And it's one of those things where of course, it's like bullying, you know, bullies, bullies aren't just jerks necessarily, you know, they're usually people who have been bullied themselves and have their own mental health issues going on, their own self-esteem issues, and they take it out on other people. And it's just a, it's a, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And that it's a lot, it's, it's that way. Oftentimes with sexual addiction is either there's, there's some sort of traumatic event or, um, or sexual abuse, or even this, you know, our sexualized culture for some people that distorts their reality of how they view sex. And because sex is something that we don't really talk about, the addiction thrives in secrecy because then the addict gets in their head that they're the only one like this. And so they can't talk to anybody about it. And then once you actually start talking to people, one of the things that I've noticed is I've, I've actually met several other people who are like, oh, yeah, no, my so-and-so, my, my brother has that problem. Or I know that my best friend, you know, sees, goes, goes to, you know, gets um, names of people anonymously and they have hookups and his wife doesn't know. And it's just like a lot of people just want to think of it as a moral failing when there's just, there's just so much more complexity involved. When he told you and you, you trusted him, what, what happened next for you? So the next thing was, um, I'm, I'm like, like you guys, I am a very, very big believer in um, therapy. Um, I think everyone should go to therapy. And yeah, he, he was currently going to therapy at that point, but uh, not specifically for addiction. And and so at that point we found, um, we found a counselor who was specifically trained in treating sexual addiction which is hard in itself because sexual addiction along with several other behavior related addictions are not yet in the DSM. The, you know, they, they're not considered actual quote unquote real diagnoses. And so, you know, you can't really get insurance to cover and things like that. And it's, it's, it's hard, but it's still, even though it's not in the DSM, it's still a, a huge area of research and study. Um, and there's lots, there are a lot of people putting their efforts towards it however still not that many and we live in kind of a small town and so there there definitely wasn't anyone who was a specifically certified sexual addiction therapist in our town 
and it was pretty hard to find one even within an hour. We found one an hour away in one of the bigger cities, and uh, it's really it's been really interesting just finding out more about that practice because they are they are booked like they're they're constantly turning people away because there are not enough sex addiction therapists for the number of people who feel that they need treatment for sexual addiction of some variety. And I we probably should you know, define sexual addiction a little bit, but it's it can range from it's pretty much any compulsion that's that's in this vein, like sexual is so like it could start with just masturbation or you know viewing pornography or anonymous hookups online or just talking to anonymous people online for sex, um, you know, to just compulsive relationships. Um, there's some like love and sex addiction um, groups and there are others that focus specifically on computer, you know, uh, internet related things. Um, and it can go all the way up to, you know, people with, with their, with, whose addiction causes them to act out in ways that is illegal. But that luckily my, I haven't had to deal with, with that, but, um, but that's something where still a mental health issue and it's not that they shouldn't be treated as criminal issues, but then they should also give help for the mental health aspects of things instead of just, you know, throwing people in jail and not giving them any, any help towards the mental health issues. So you found someone, is that something that you guys decided to work on together or was it something that he was going to work on alone? So at that point, it was something he was doing alone, but I was doing my own reading. And, and I um, uh, there's a there's a author called Patrick Carnes. He's actually he's a doctor who he's like the leading leading expert in sexual addiction. And he has a book called Out of the Shadows. That's like the very basic kind of like introductory, you know, 101 sex, sex addiction 101. But my my personal favorite is uh, a book that he has. It's called. Uh, don't call it love recovery from sexual addiction. That's just much more comprehensive and it's, it's more about the recovery process, which is, you know, hopefully what I, where, where we are, that's where I pretty much, i I just do a lot of reading and a lot of, I I'm a very talkative person. So I have my, my core group of friends that I can talk about and they bounce questions off me often and give me things to think about. And I try and help explain our situation because I, I completely understand that it's a really hard thing for, for somebody to understand if they're not, if they're not in it. And that's, I think that's the biggest thing is trying to understand something that you're not a part of is one of the hardest things that I think we do period just in in all the time, but especially in a situation like this where people try and have empathy where they say, okay, well, if I was that person in their shoes, this is what I would do. I just wouldn't do that. And if my husband could just not do that, this wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> like that's, that's just not an option on the table. And that's the thing that's really hard for people to understand is that their thought processes can be different than somebody else's thought processes and that their physical, physical reaction to things and their mental reaction to things will be different than other people. And, you know, I so often have people say, you know, well, if he's addicted to sex, why doesn't he just have a lot of sex with you? And it's like, that wouldn't, then it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> like, that's just not, not helpful. That's just not an option. Well, talk a little bit then for people who might be at the beginning of this road. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he's, he starts working with someone, you're doing research. 
What's the evolution of that process? You've, you've used the word recovery a few times. I'm yeah. interested in learning how you go from sort of identifying a problem to recovery. And, and if you can, um, as you talk about this, can you give us a sense of how much he understood before he started working with a professional? I think he understood quite a lot, but it, he understood a lot of the factual and logistical things about his addiction just in his own research that he'd done because um, this is something that he's struggled with his entire life. It it um, it all it all started, and I don't think that this is too personal of a thing, but um, I think it's probably a really common thing, is that his disordered thinking when it came to sex started when he was six, when uh, an older relative showed him um, a pornography magazine. And that's one of those things where a lot of people hearing that might be like, whoa, six is a little young, but a lot of other people might be like, oh, that's just porn. It's just, you know, just naked ladies. That's nothing. But, you know, that it just people have different reactions to things. And that just kind of set him on a path of then he, he, you know, he knew it was something that was taboo and he, it was a it's secret. And the, one of the things about addiction is it has to constantly escalate and it just continued to escalate through his life. And then of course the internet happened and things just continued to escalate. Um, but as far as, as far as understanding the addiction, I think he understood, he understood it well enough to know that it was something he didn't fully have control of. And he'd tried many times, just like any addict, he had, he had tried many times throughout his life to stop acting out in the way that he was because he knew that he, that wasn't the person that he was. But every time that he tried, his disordered thinking would always kind of come back around. And it's, it, the cycle would always start over again. And even when he would go through times of sobriety, then just like any addict, you know, they get to the point of thinking, hey, I've got this under control. Maybe I can do it just a little bit. And, you know, the cycle starts over again. I'm trying to think of what your original question was. <laughs> so so I, the process of kind of working with someone to feeling like you're in a state of recovery, I think would be helpful right. to people to hear. I mean, that's just something I think that's, it's very individual. It's, it's like any, any addiction and that the person has to actually, it, you know, obviously they have to admit that they have a problem. He's been struggling with his recovery, you know, the entire time we've been together. And I think just like any addict, it's going to be something that he's going to struggle with for the rest of his life. You know, there have been stops and starts. There have been, you know, the quote unquote falling off the wagon. There's been long periods of sobriety. There have been, you know, big moments where he's like, okay, I'm not going to, you know, this, this is going to end after the wedding. This is going to end after our son is born. And it's, it's the loss of control that, that is complete powerlessness that you have over the addiction that lead to full-term recovery. And so he, he actually is, hasn't really, I, I, I don't know how to actually specifically define when you're in an active addiction versus recovery, but even though he's been working on it for a really long time, it's something that we still, you know, we still struggle with. I would imagine that people are wondering, and I don't want to ask this in a way that is asking for very personal details of your life. Right. Yeah. I would imagine that people wonder what sobriety looks like in the context of sex addiction of a married yeah. person i mean is that, that just a very, healthy <laughs> is that just kind of a healthy uh, monogamy or you know how do you define that for yeah. yourself i mean it's 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 another one of those things that's that's you know defined differently by everyone but um one of the things about 
sexual addiction is being able to identify the very the specific things that that are your addiction versus the things that you consider having a healthy sex relationship. One of the things about sexual addiction that I think is really interesting is a lot of times people will assume that the opposite of sex addiction is no sex or that someone who wants to talk about sex addiction is automatically going to be anti-pornography or anti-sex or, you know, those sort of things. And I actually, I've, I've, you know, even before I met my husband, but even still now I'm, I consider myself a very, very um, sex positive feminist. It's the distinction between being in control and not being in control. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of the, the, the distinction between, you know, consent and not having consent. You know, one, one thing, if you, if you have consent for activity, it's perfectly fine. But if you don't have consent for the activity, then that same activity all of a sudden becomes not perfectly fine. And it's the same with sexual addiction. You know, some people can view pornography without problem and they can just like some people can drink without a problem or some people can even, you know, they can gamble without a problem. They can eat without a problem. And then there are other people where there are specific things that trigger them into losing control over that specific action. People can debate all day long about what is quote unquote technically an addiction or not, but you just can't argue in my mind, the distinction between a person having control over something and not having control. And it's something that I've struggled with for a long time because the way that our, our therapist explains it is that addiction is like this, you know, 700 pound gorilla that just comes up from behind and grabs a person around the neck and picks them up and they no longer have control of where their feet are going and just takes them to wherever they, wherever the addiction wants them to go. And they do not have control over it. And of course my reaction to that was like, well, shoot the gorilla, you know, run away from the gorilla, (laughs) try and just not let the gorilla grab your neck. And it's just like, that's, that's, I just, I like to beat analogies to death. And it's just like that. That's just not actually how it works. They, they get to a point where they physically and mentally are not in control of the actions that they're taking. And that very specific concept is where I have a sticking point in most conversations. You know, people just look at me like, I don't understand the concept of not being able to not walk into a door. if You don't want to walk into that door. You have an addiction. If you are an addict, you don't have an option. It's, it's all about, you have to work on the coping mechanisms and the, you have to work on all the steps that come way before you're in front of the door kind of thing. Because once you're in front of the door, there's no, there's no option but to walk through it. Yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, other contexts where addiction manifests in ways that are really complicated to address. So mm-hmm. what came to mind for me is food, because you know, mm-hmm. un- unlike alcohol or gambling or some or you know drugs some of the things that we have a better understanding of addiction around you can't just stop eating and you really right. can't just not have sex you know these are right. things that are very fundamental to who we are and um Brooke Castillo gave me this language about food that I find really helpful you know she said a lot of us are using food not as sustenance but as a buffer between us and reality and exactly yeah. eat because we want to avoid feeling something else. Is that your understanding of of how an addict would use sex as well or sexual activity? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's it's whenever sex is being used as medication, like to medicate pain or and that's that's when it becomes destructive or degrading um, as opposed to something that's essential or 
intimate act between two people that is an expression of, you know, their relationship or even just, you know, just something fun that you like to do. It's when it's just like with alcohol, like if you just want to have have a drink, go out with friends, that's one thing. But if you're using alcohol as a as its own coping mechanism, then it becomes a problem. But yeah, I, I joke all the time because I consider myself to be a total sugar addict. I've tried Whole30 multiple times every time, you know, it works for the 30 days. And then I'm like, awesome, I did 30 days of that. Now I'm going to go right back into it, which don't, don't tell Melissa Hardwick I said that. But <sighs> Tell me about the experience of being the partner of someone going through this. It's really hard. <laughs> It's taken me a long time to get even, you know, where I am now, which is, uh, you know, more than 10 years into our relationship, five years into knowing about the addiction. I, I just always come back to the fact that I love him and he's my person. And I totally recognize that I have to set up my own boundaries and I have to take care of myself. And, you know, I can't, I don't want to be a, a martyr or anything like that. But I know that this is something that he wants to fight. And as long as he wants to try and fight it, then I want to I want to try and help him fight it. Um, but it's um, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm not being very eloquent. You don't have yeah. to be eloquent. I mean, you're just <laughs> being so honest. And I'm struck by how much compassion you talk about. Or, you know, it just sounds like you've really tapped into as much empathy as you can muster for him. And I think that's probably pretty surprising to some people. Well, and that's, I, he, he had it, he had it rough when he was younger. Like he's, he's gone through a lot and there are very good reasons for why he is the way he is in a lot of ways. And that doesn't excuse, you know, his behaviors, but at the same time, it, it helps explain it so that you can then get to the actual root of why someone is acting a certain way as opposed to just being upset by it. And one of the things that I, that I hear a lot is, you know, what's the difference between your husband having a sexual addiction and just your husband cheating on you all the time. And to be completely honest, as, and this is another one of those things that confuses a whole lot of people, but I don't view his, his acting out with his addiction as infidelity because it's not, it's just not the same thing. It's is, not about love. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's not, it's not emotional. Although even, you know, for some people, their addiction is emotional, but it's addiction is just so separate from reality. It's just, it's just so different than being in a relationship with someone who either doesn't want to be with you or wants to be with you, but also wants to be with other people. Like he, he, he does not want to do the things that he does. He just, it's based in, you know, as, as with all addictions, you know, the difference between just a regular compulsion and addiction is that addiction starts with that, that an addiction brings something pleasurable. But, but do you understand what I mean? Like he, he doesn't, like he goes through the, the addiction cycle of, and I, again, I'm not an expert, so I don't know the, the, I would have to flip through all my Karns books in front of me to find, you know, the actual, the cycle of addiction, but it always, it always comes back to despair that the last part of the addiction cycle is always despair because addicts do not want to be addicts, but they get caught up in the addictive system and the impaired thinking and preoccupation and the compulsivities. And it's just a really, really hard cycle to break. And you can, 
break it many times before it actually sticks. And, you know, you'd have to talk to any any addict in long-term recovery to figure out, you know, what was it that actually made it stick? And most of them are just like, at some point, you just know you're ready to be done. And before some before an addict is ready to be in full recovery, there's nothing you can do. And that's one of the things that I've had to I've had to let let go of control. There's just going to have to be a point where he realizes that it's it's time to be done. And you know, he had to get to a point where he was ready to even admit it, and he had to get to a point where he was ready to go see a professional. And then he had to get to the point where he was actually ready to commit to going to see a professional. And you know, he had to commit that that it was as big of a problem as as it was, you know, because all you know, there's so much denial of, okay, well, this is a problem, but it's not that big of a problem. But when you're, you know, you're putting your own health and your partner's health continually at risk and doing, you know, high risk behaviors, these are things that are just ingrained in addiction. It's just like the person who, you know, gambles away all of their money, even when they have children to take care of, you know, they, they spend their last, their last bit of money on a lottery ticket when they could be buying food for their children. It's just like that person clearly is not making good choices. But it's not because they're a bad person. It's there's clearly something going on. And I think the thing that hits me the most is when I read about one of the pictures that they found of uh, of Anthony Weiner was um, a picture that he had taken of himself. He was taking a picture of himself and you could see his son in the background. His son was asleep in the bed and he was still doing this. And people hear that and they're like, oh, my God, that's disgusting. He's doing that with his child in the bed with a horrible horrible father what a horrible person but i think that just goes to show like this is a this is not a a monster he is a person and he doesn't want to put his son through this he he the only possible explanation in my mind for a rational person to do something like this is that they have somewhere have lost control um and again it's not to excuse it it's just to try and help understand so that we can help people and not just help the, help the addict, but help people understand so that once we actually can talk about this, then people can stop feeling the intense shame. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why I don't want I don't want people to know who I am, because I know that we're not there yet. Right. <laughs> and well, Seth, go ahead. so you you have a child together. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that the people who know about this part of your story uh, had questions about that. Am I right about that? And I guess I'm, I'm part of what I want to ask you and I'm trying to find a way to ask it with in the, in the right words, maybe the right words don't exist, (laughs) but but I guess what I want to ask you is how much of your marriage gets to be separate from this? Well, actually (laughs) we've done a lot of compartmentalizing, I think is the right word. Uh, you know, we are, we actually have a very happy relationship with the exception of this. And yeah, we, we co-parent. That's one of the, one of the reasons I love my husband so much is because he's such a great father. And I knew that he was going to be a great father before we ever had children. That was one of the things that that drew me to him so much was I was just like, I want to have that guy's baby. (laughs) And I still want to have more children with him. And there are so many pieces of our relationship that feel separate from the addiction but obviously when so much of it revolves around trust and being able to be honest with each other that's really the part that i think the 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 honesty or the dishonesty specifically affects 
more of our relationship than anything else. We've gotten to the point where I I actually don't really get mad about when he has um, slips or acting out or whatever the you know what semantics you want to call it. But the thing that does make me mad is when he's not honest with me about it. That's that's the thing that we've been working on the most in the past couple of years is just his ability to be honest about his addiction. Because if he can't be honest with himself and with me, you know, there's you can't really move forward until you can be honest about what's going on and be able to talk about it. Well, it interests me that you said that, because another thing I've been thinking about as we've been talking is that the people I know who've struggled with any form of addiction roles become really important to them. You know, to whom am I accountable? Who Mm -hmm. is supporting me in this? And I would imagine that's enormously complex in in your marriage. So so I just am wondering, um, how, how do you understand yourself? Are you, um, are you able to compartmentalize and say sort of, I'm your, I'm your spouse and your partner and your co-parent and, and you have to work on this thing in order for those things to continue? Or do you understand yourself as sort of a part of his team in the course of working on it? Or is it some hybrid that depends on the day? Yeah, kind of that, 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 that last part. Um, Cause we've, we've, we've tried, we're constantly trying new things. And, um, you know, at the moment we actually are trying a bit of a separation from any sort of romantic relationship, which has been, it's been, it, we've just actually been trying it the past week. So it's still pretty new. But yeah, right now we, we, we live in the same house. We, we still co-parent as much as we always have, you know, cause we want our son to have a happy home. And I know that, you know, there are some people that say you shouldn't stay together for the children. And that's not, that's not what I'm trying to say, but it's, oh God, it's just, oh, it's so complex. That's one of the reasons why it's hard to talk about. Cause I don't want my son to have to grow up with this sort of stigma or embarrassment about his dad. Well, Aubrey, I wonder what you would say to people who sense in their partners that something like this could be occurring. What advice would you give them? I guess the first, the first piece of advice would just to try and be open to the possibility that it's, that it's a mental health issue and not, not a betrayal. Uh, Cause that's, that's how it often feels, you know, when you find out someone is um, dealing with something like this, especially if they if they're not talking to you about it. The betrayal isn't just the actual act, but the betrayal is the not being let in to to their head because they they can't let anybody in. But I think I think maybe it's trying to figure out the distinction between you know just a bad habit versus an addiction. You know, and the loss of control, the the inability to stop despite negative consequences. And just looking, I mean, I would, I would honestly, I really highly recommend anything by Patrick Carnes or looking at the, the Center for Healthy Sex online. You've mentioned taking Sorry. care of yourself. No, no, no. You've mentioned taking care of yourself a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that look like for you? A lot of it involves my friends. In the beginning, I, I couldn't talk to anyone about it just because I had so much embarrassment and shame and I just didn't think anyone would understand. The more that I talk to my friends about it, the more that they're able to they're able to say that they know me well enough that they understand that this goes beyond something that they were able to comprehend beforehand. Whereas in, in the very beginning, they would just get defensive and only worry about me and, and want me to just get out of the situation. But the more they learn about it and the more, the longer it goes on, the more they understand. And so it's really, it's really important to have people to be able to talk to you about it. But yeah, taking care of myself mainly involves being able to talk to people about what's going on and trying not to simplify it because it's 
it's just so complicated and gray. Like there, it isn't black and white, which it would be so much easier if you could just say, you know, do this, not that. Being able to accept the complexity of it and just accept that I don't get it, but trust that this person that I love is gonna is gonna fight fight as much as he can. Because yeah, I, I honestly think this is a much bigger problem than anyone in our society is willing to admit. Like I think I think so many more people have addiction issues with either pornography or online hookups or even like uh, the app dating, like with Tinder and all that stuff. Again, some people can can do that stuff just fine and have fun, and it's not a problem whatsoever. But for some people, it becomes a compulsion that can take over their life and lead them to making really, really poor decisions that they wouldn't normally make. But because it's seen as a moral failing as opposed to a mental health issue, nobody wants to talk about it or admit it. And it's just easier to mock because that's what we do in our society is when we don't understand something, we just kind of make fun of it and pretend like it's not a problem. You know, when I graduated from law school, I started practicing in the area of domestic relations. And I realized very quickly that I won't and I don't need to understand what people's expectations for their marriages are. Yeah. And that I, I won't and I don't need to understand what family means to different people and what they find um, important in the people that they surround themselves with, which I say to set up what I think will be my last question because I have You've been so generous with your time and story, and I don't want to continue to ask you to talk about it. No, no. Um, I just wish I was saying things more. <laughs> I wish I was saying better words. <laughs> well, but, I mean, that's the point, right? What language do we have around around this topic? And yeah. And that's kind of where I was headed with my question. You know, if there was a thing that you could tell the world about your understanding of uh, commitment or love or marriage, even people who have not experienced something like this and will not, what would that be? That everybody has their own boundaries. And it's really about, you have to know yourself first and you have to know where your boundaries are before you can take care of other people. And, you know, it's like that cliche about putting your air mask on on an airplane before helping the person next to you. Like if you're, if you're just putting someone else's if you're putting someone else before before you, but to the detriment of you, then you're not actually helping them. Like I understand that I I love my husband, but if I if I lose myself in this, then what's the point? You know, I I can't I can't love someone if I'm not fully there to love them. So being able to recognize your own boundaries so that you can then give someone everything that you know you can. And I in my mind, you know, I I may not know exactly where my boundaries are as far as being able to predict the future. Like I can't say, you know, I have another year of this or I have, but I just, I just know, I I know when I hit those boundaries, I know when I, I've gotten to those points where I say, you know what, actually this is where we're going to stop doing this. Or um, like, I know that I'm never going to take our son away from him because he's a great dad. Um, But I can't guarantee that I'm always going to live in the same house, you know, kind of thing. Like he's always going to be a part of my life no matter what, because because that's the decision that I've made that I, I want him in my life always, but my own personal boundaries have to be drawn based on where he is in his addiction and um, his ability to take care of himself because he has to figure out how to do it by himself and for himself before I can even really be helpful. 
because if I'm not here and all of a sudden it's just him working on it, he has to be able to figure that out. And addiction is, that's one of the things about addiction is it's so much people around the addict want to fix it. And you're never, ever going to be able to make an addict recover. They have to be ready to recover and they have to be ready to work on it. And I think as far as the love and commitment thing goes, I, I knew about this addiction before we got engaged. I knew about it before we got you know married and had a kid. And I knew that at some point we were going to start working on it more. And I just, I had already accepted that this was going to be a part of our life. And I, one of the things that I tell my husband often is that I married him on purpose. And I knew what I was doing. I don't know. He's my person. I love him in a way that I can't even fathom not not having him in my life at the very least. Like I are the the specifics of our relationship might always change, but you know, based on his recovery or our boundaries or our son. But I just know that the person that he is is a person that I always want to know. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. 
Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So in the heels today, we are talking about what's on our mind outside politics. And you clearly have to go first. Yeah, because I. (laughs) So what's on my mind is my visit to the Korean spa while I was in California for podcast movement. It was amazing. Have you ever been to a Korean spa? I have never been to a Korean spa. Okay, here's what happens. So you come in and we you can just go to like the spa room. But we paid $80 for the scrub down and the massage. I was with a friend of mine and her sister-in-law who's been a lot of times and was sort of our little guide. So you come in and there's like all these signs in Korea and there's one English sign and it says naked zone. So you go into the spa and everyone is butt naked. All the ladies. Now there's a lady side and a men's side. Obviously you're not there with men. So it's all women naked. There is a dry sauna. There is a herbal steam sauna. There is a salt steam sauna. There was like a big, big, very hot jacuzzi. And then there was like an ice tub that was so cold. So you like, you come like an hour or so before your appointment and you can just work your way around this room. I did finally gather the nerve to get into the ice jacuzzi. I don't know what it was. It was literally like a jacuzzi except the water was ice cold. I even went under the second time because it felt so good when I went in the first time. I mean, it doesn't feel good. You step in and every cell in your body goes, no, get out. What's wrong with you? But then once you get all the way in and out, it's amazing. And so there's also like showers. And then there's this little like these little bench shower things where like the women, because a lot of the Korean women come all the time, but they don't get them like they do the scrubs down themselves. So they're like sitting on these little stools in front of these shower, like, like, sort of bar level or not like, like, I don't know how to describe it, like a little shower desk and they're spraying and they're scrubbing, scrubbing, scrubbing and they're spraying and they all kind of circulate around the room. It was amazing. Just that part was amazing. And then these women come out and they're in their bra and underwear and they call your locker number and you go back and it's like this big padded table with like that stuff they put over couches to protect them, just like plastic, but like thick hard plastic and you lay down naked. (laughs) It's like totally open. There's no door. And she scrubs every inch of your body like four times over. There was literally like skin on the table that she had just scrub, scrub, scrub. I mean, my elbows right now, you would not even understand. Okay, so she scrub, 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 scrub. Then you get out, she you go to the shower, you shower off, you come back. Then she gives you the massage, rubs all over, feels amazing. Then she shampoos your hair and gives you a facial mask. Then you finish up. Then there's another dry section where they have food and drinks and dry room. So there's like a pink Himalayan room. And here's the kicker. Then they have this room that's like, it's like beds, sort of. Like they're like laid out in a grid on the floor. Except the beds are filled with these like about the size of your your pinky, 
like the pad of your pinky finger. And they're red clay balls filling these like sort of bed areas and they're heated. So you like lay down in them and sort of like move around and the heated red balls just like kind of morph all and surround your whole body and you just lay there. And there's also a sleep room. You can just go in and go to sleep. Are you Uh, naked for this part? All of it. All of it is naked. Well, I mean, when you go in the dry room, I had my like little flimsy robe on, but I kind of opened it up because I got hot and there were women in there that were definitely all the way naked. And I just think that this is such a positive experience as a woman because the images of bodies, especially naked bodies or near naked bodies that we see are like, oh, I don't know, 0.5% of what the actual population looks like. And so to like be in this room full of women of all shapes and sizes is like a good, healthy reminder of like, no, this is what naked people look like. It was amazing. It was life changing. I wish I could go every week. So I want to recap and make sure that I understand. You get like an hour of just, hey, do all the relaxing things. Yes. And then you get scrubbed. Did the scrubbing feel good or was it felt like amazing. while it was happening? Yes. Okay. So it was, that was pleasant. It wasn't yes. just effective, yes. but it was also effective. Yes. Then you're getting a massage and then you basically get to take like a hot nap. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. This is what I want. All these things. It was, I'm just telling you, it was life-changing. The worst part is that there's not one here where I live. I looked it up, though. There's one in Atlanta, which we go to somewhere regularly, and in Chicago, but not Nashville. P.S. Get on in Nashville. I I just can't even tell you how wonderful it was. And I was so jealous of all these women who just get to come whenever they want all the time. And it's like clearly like their social hour. They're there with their friends. They're hanging out. They're scrubbing. And my friend Carrie or my friend's sister-in-law, Carrie, who who is now my friend because we hung out naked for like three hours. Um she said, like, sometimes they'll come in as a group and they'll, like, scrub down each other over by the the little stools and, like, help each other out, scrub each other's backs. Because you don't want to pay $80 every time going. You can just go $15 and just get access to all the rooms. Ugh, I just can't even tell you. I will put a picture of the red clay ball on our Instagram so everybody can see what it was like because I took one with me. I couldn't you stand You had it. a better week than I did all around. <laughs> I was so jealous that I was not a podcast movement with really you. That was a bad, that was a bad financially responsible decision that we oh. made. <laughs> um, and then this just rubbing it in, but I'm so glad that you had a good time. It really was amazing. Well, I've been thinking about time and about how to get more done without being busier because mm-hmm. I've decided that I hate busy and mm-hmm. busy is not a virtue. Mm-hmm. And I need to stop treating it like it is. And I I just have to get more organized. So I came up with something that is really working for me right now. I feel like my entire life is going in Evernote. I have notebooks for everything. I am taking pictures of documents as they come in the door, then throwing the paper away. That's hot. Keeping the document in the Evernote notebook that it's assigned to. And then here's my favorite thing that I've done. I am always obsessing over like, am I, cause I didn't do elaborate baby books and I don't scrapbook. So I worry about preserving memories for my children. And so I made a Gmail account for both of my daughters. So now they have a good Gmail account name because I think those are going to get harder to come by as their lives roll along. And every Sunday I'm just sending them an email. That's nice. I like that. Here's, here are some things. And when significant things come in that I think they might want pictures of later, just emailing it to them. I like it. I have a very, I have a 
multi-front approach to the memory. I love a memory capture. Like I love memories. I want, I have closets full of photo, photo albums and scrapbooks. Like I'm not a scrapbooker, but I like to keep things. So I, when they were babies, I did not do baby books, but there's this really lovely journal that you can get on Amazon called, I think it's like the first 1000 days. And you just write a letter every month to them about like what they're, how, how they're different. Loved it. Did it for all three of my boys. Love that little book. Then I do at the end of the year, I do it like a, I do a photo book of just like the end of the year. Like, and I really, honestly, I could just populate it with Instagram and that would probably be big, be good enough because I don't really take pictures with my camera anymore, but I do like to like fill in some more photos of like the bigger things like our um, vacation albums. And then I also have a birthday book that I like, like the little journals, like I like to fill in things. I'm really big on that. So I have a little birthday book where they, it's really cute. You like put their invitation in the envelope or like any cards they got. And then you just, there's like a yearly interview that you do with their birthday. And then you ask, you write down the details of their birthday. Love that one. And then I do uh December daily, which is the Christmas one. I just, I like like a, I have to have like a trigger. It works really well if I have like a trigger event, you know what I mean? So if you had Sunday, that would work really well. You have like a thing that's, that triggers you to know that's what you do. Yes. Tell me where you keep all your little books, because another objective that I have here is I just want I want less and less and less in our house. Yeah, everybody has to have less things. I'm very passionate about this. Less things makes you feel better about life. I have just one. I literally have like a closet because my house is has an abundance of closets. So I have like three hallway closets, even though I have a three bedroom ranch. And so one closet is like the linen closet. One closet at the end of the hall is Nicholas's man closet where he keeps all his camping stuff. And then I have this little closet that's like about the size of a linen closet, but is where I put all the the books I print out and the birthday books. And I know where every, they're all in there along with my scrapbooks from like high school and stuff. And then I have, you know, those like kind of like document books you get from Ikea. They're like the size of a, you know, like by an eight by 10 yeah, I think I know what you're you know talking, what I'm talking about. about. So mm-hmm. I keep one of those open on the bottom shelf. And every time we get like a program that we went to, like one of their school programs or something I want to keep, I just throw it in the box. At the end of the year, I put the lid on the box, stick it at the bottom of the stack, open up a new box. Interesting. Yeah. I have a pretty, I have a comprehensive system because <laughs> I yeah. like that stuff. I like it. And then I use an app called Moment Garden whenever they say something funny. If I put it on Facebook, if it's funny enough for me to like, I got to tell everybody, Amos said this is so funny. I just copy and paste the status and stick it in Moment Garden. And Moment Garden will like tack the date and how old they are. And every kid gets their own garden. It's real easy to switch back and forth. I'm a little worried though, because they haven't updated the app in a while or their Facebook page. And I probably need to export it because that's the problem with all those like kid focused apps. It's like some of them don't stay around forever. This is why I went with Gmail because I feel like yeah, Google going is, anywhere. is going to be here. And so I thought if I can go ahead and get this set up for them and then I've got drive and I can keep, st- there's so much storage. So That's I'm true. feeling good about, I'm feeling like good that. about their email accounts. I'm feeling real. I think that system is, is gold star system right there. I think that's going to work out well. I appreciate and I it. Ser- and it's searchable. Think about that. Exactly. So many things. Well, I don't I use. Gave- I've been really trying to focus because what do they call that with the with the regards to your Evernote? I try to use my bullet journal like that, but it's hard when it's like a physical item you have to keep on you. But they say that's the key to staying organized is like external externalizing it. I don't know what they call it, but like you got to get it out of your brain. That's the key. I spent most of this weekend and last weekend thinking, how do I get all the things in my brain out of my brain? Mm -hmm. So I made a little index cards with different topics for all the things that can, that I kind of chew on constantly mentally. And I'm just sensation. I'm just putting little notes on my index cards so that then I can convert those to like either calendar entries where I'm going to do something 
or like a task list, or we have all kinds of project lists in Pansy Politics now because of this process that I've gone through. So I'm, I'm feeling like on it right now. I'm excited for you. Thank you. Hey, everybody out there. First of all, tell us if you've gone to a Korean spa, because I want to hear what if the, how different they are different spas. And two, tell us your systems. We want to hear your systems for staying organized or capturing memories. Let's share all the systems. I mm-hmm. totally agree. Because this is also my other thing. I just want to hear about systems all day long. Like, these are my favorite kind of blog posts to read. This is my most often Pinterest-searched topic. I love it. Because I'm like, I'm going to find the one that's going to change everything. And when I, I know logically that's true. I still like to learn about new systems. So It's fun to try different things. I mean, yes. if nothing else, it gives it's like a little gas in your tank, right? You're motivated to try something and you get some things done. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Pantsy Politics. We always want to thank our executive producers, Nicholas, especially Nicholas today, because he worked really hard to change Aubrey's voice for this episode. Thank you, Nicholas. Also, Tracy, Leslie, and Sabrina, thank you so much for supporting Pantsy Politics. Please follow us on social media at Pantsy Politics on Twitter, Pantsy Politics on Facebook and Instagram. Check out our Instagram stories. Sarah has been killing it with Instagram stories lately. We appreciate your reviews on the Apple Podcast app. If you have not become a patron of Pantsy Politics and that doesn't fit into your life this time, leaving us a review is a really awesome way to help support the show. Thank you so much. And until we're back with you on Friday, keep it nuanced, y'all. <laughs>